I'm Mike Howie, and this is a Defender Radio special report. Defender Radio is the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers brought to you by the Fur Bears. More than two dozen incidents of coyotes scratching and biting people have occurred in Vancouver Stanley Park since December 2020. You've likely seen media coverage of this, and yes, much of it has been wildly sensational with a great deal of guesswork. But the truth is difficult to find in this series of events. Factually, we're aware of many pieces of evidence. Coyotes are a natural part of the landscape in British Columbia. Stanley Park is not just a park, but a massive forest and ecosystem. Prior to 2020, only a handful of bites or interactions had occurred with coyotes. And, as everyone agrees, these behaviors are concerning. Through much of the media coverage, however, entire swatches of fact are being left out, such as the massive shift in human use of the park following the start and progression of the coronavirus pandemic, or the apparent lack of enforcement of feeding bylaws and park use restrictions. The coverage also leaves out the nuance often necessary in a conversation about evidence and ecosystems, something that numerous advocates and experts have noted. As such, this special report is an in-depth conversation with Dr. Kristen Walker, a professor at UBC who has worked on the ground in Stanley Park recently to collect evidence and begin forming an understanding of changes to coyote behavior. Our interview was recorded approximately one week ago, and as static media may not include the most recent information or news. For example, in just the last few days, there have been more interactions as well as new evidence showing people visiting the park at 1.30 in the morning off trail with food. If you're interested in learning more about coyote behavior and what successful coexistence models look like, please visit thefurbears.com and go to the Living with Wildlife section, or check out our friends at coyotewatchcanada.com, who specialize in creating co-flourishing ecosystems between wildlife and people. Now, here's Dr. Kristen Walker. So let's start out talking about coyotes in Stanley Park. There are coyotes in Stanley Park. There have been coyotes in Stanley Park for some time. Uh, and in the last several months, I guess nine months now, we've seen a number of um, bites from coyotes to people and a great accounting of some negative encounters beyond that. Uh, while we can't say what was happening at the time, uh, with any certainty, we can talk about what's happening in the park now as uh, yourself and your team and others are trying to understand the situation. So what is happening in general terms on the ground uh, through Stanley Park as this issue is explored? Yes, I think there's a few things that are going on that they're trying to understand is a how many coyotes are in Stanley Park right now. So how many are utilizing the area? Um, we have placed the trail crammers up in the park so that we're able to help monitor some of the individuals and we're trying to use unique identifiers on the individuals to confirm um, how many individuals are there um, and coming across the cameras. And we're also using those cameras to get at um, some of the other behaviors that could be happening in that area with humans, um, not, not necessarily just coyotes and all the interactions between different wildlife. Um, you know, there are a variety of other types of activities, I think, that need to be done in the park that aren't necessarily being done in the park. Yes. Um, one of the, well, and of course, some of that involves some of the basic coexistence tools that we, we recommend. And when I say we, I mean, those of us involved in 
coexistence on whatever aspects that we look to, such as covering up garbage bins, making them wildlife um, or not secure, but you know, protected against wildlife, uh, increased signage, making sure that um, litter is being cleaned up, et cetera. And I think the big one is feeding. And wh why don't we talk a little bit about the feeding aspect now uh, and kind of get it out of the way? Because I believe, uh, and we, the fur bears, initially said feeding is very likely at the cause of a lot of this and needs to be addressed. And we have learned in the coming months, and I think as early as January, realized that it's more than just feeding. But feeding likely plays a large role. And in other situations happening around Canada right now, we are getting direct reports that, yes, it is direct feeding by visitors and by photographers who were baiting and a variety of other individuals. Um, so in terms of feeding, what, what can we expect feeding of wildlife in a large urban park like Stanley Park to do to not just the animals the food is being put out for, but for everyone else? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think, you know, feeding definitely is contributing to this. But I think one thing we need to understand is where is that happening? We don't have enough information about how frequent the feeding is, what are they feeding them, who are they targeting. Um, we do know, you know, in the park that people have been leaving out piles of goldfish crackers. People have been bringing in bread for geese or for ducks. Um, and whenever we have that, you're going to have other animals coming into that area, um, which is then going to potentially attract the coyotes as well. Um, we don't know, you know, there have been accounts of people saying that there's been dog food that they found left out on some of the trails. Um, we don't have this actually truly accounted for though. So it would be lovely to have an on the ground investigation happening where we can collect that information and understand a little bit more. Um, even if we were to look at through scat analysis and be able to see what the coyotes in particular are eating so that we can confirm saying, yes, they are eating human food or they're eating, you know, dog food within there and not necessarily just living on a, um, a more natural diet. Um, but it's a complex issue because even, you know, the fact that you mentioned before about um, unsecured trash cans, right? And I mean, wildlife is going to feed off of that as well. So every time I've been in the park, I see squirrels getting in and out of the trash bins. And, mm -hmm. you know, those bins are everywhere else. We have wild proof um, bins. And, you know, we do know that they, the Stanley Park has been donated wildproof bins to be able to use, but it is still in the process of getting that approved. Um, and how are they going to service them? And, um, but the COS has donated them um, to oh, Stanley wow, Park. It, it's been a while though. Um, and so I don't know all the logistics yeah. of that and I'll leave that up to the others to speak to that. But it is something that um, we need We need to get to that point where we can secure the garbage because we don't need to have all those outside attractants for that. Even if it's not coyotes climbing in the garbage, eating it, they are gonna be getting some of the other animals in that area. Um, and it's just going to, it's gonna attract other animals. And with the wildlife feeding, you know, I mean, we have also heard accounts of people leaving out, as you mentioned, leaving out food to attract um, animals to take photographs of them. Um, mm -hmm. There's a lot of people in the park that, you know, I see these amazing photos on Instagram and um, other places of, you know, whether that be raccoons or coyotes or some of the other animals. And I often wonder how are they getting that close and how are they finding them so easily when the researchers on the ground aren't able to find some of these animals as easily. Um, so that does pose the question, are they, um, are they just photographing them or are they actually trying to lure them in? 
And we know that is a widespread issue. I, I've covered it on this podcast with photographers like Johnny Marriott, who is an outspoken critic of wildlife feeding and baiting. Um, and I think it's it's important to talk too about what happens when we start feeding and the 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 spiraling consequence that's difficult to visualize. I, I think the big thing for me that kind of clicked in place was when I realized that putting out food for a raccoon and waiting for them to get close to get a picture is kind of how I teach my dog, JJ, to give paw or to wait and then come. Um, it, it, it is the exact same positive reinforcement through food reward that dog trainers uh, across the world, around the world, are teaching people to do to try and, you know, get your dog to be more comfortable with you and mm -hmm. this and that. Is, is it the same with other wild or with other animals that maybe aren't, you know, quote, domesticated? Well, it could be because if they know that, you know, if they, they know that a human has left out the food and then they're coming up and they're able to get that food without any harm happening to them, then they're going to seek that out again, right? And they may learn that behavior that, hey, humans are okay, and they can start to be closer and closer to them. Yeah, it's it's very interesting how that starts to uh, starts to go, and the myriad of reasons people have for putting out food, um, which has been a, a difficult subject to really crack. Uh, a, a, not just in British Columbia, this is not a British Columbia or a Stanley Park issue. Uh, it is a, I, I would say, a worldwide issue. But uh, at least in Canada and America, we see it with great frequency, and then can tie it to. Uh, negative encounters that happen later. And people are trying uh, to connect with nature, right? And that's one way that I think they're trying yeah. to do that is by, you know, seeing this animal up close and food is the way to get that animal there. But not understanding that that's conditioning the animal to that and it can be very harmful. Yeah. Um, and of course, that we also don't necessarily see what happens next. Um, one of the ones that I, I like, the anecdote I quite enjoy telling, uh, much to Leslie Sampson of Coyote Watch Canada's dismay, um, was when we were at a park in Burlington, uh, trying to figure out what was going on with some coyote sightings and reports. Uh, we were along this lovely boardwalk and stopped for a moment to chat and she was leaning back against it and had her hand on the railing and a squirrel ran up and nipped her finger because they have been so conditioned to the food left on that banister that I, I can't imagine a squirrel doing that anywhere else. Um, but it, it, it has this then long-term impact. Yep. It's the same. There's a few of the mountains up here that there's some of the ground squirrels that people have been feeding and they get the close pictures of them. And then, you know, I went up there one day and we're sitting there and all of them were just bombarding us and just trying to get food from us. And it was, it yeah. was disheartening to me knowing that this is a negative thing that's happening with them, right? It's not necessarily, they've become now dependent upon that human food as well. Um, and that's the other yeah. thing that we don't necessarily see is how does that, how does that change their behavior then for finding food in other areas? Yeah. Uh, and the impact that also has on the ecosystem. I believe it's exactly. at Royal Botanical Gardens. There's the example of, uh, and I got to find the study again so I can reference it properly, but uh, chipmunks being fed to such a degree that they're not eating natural vegetation, which is allowing for an invasive plant species to take hold in a sensitive watershed. Yes. Yep, um, it's a cascade it's, effect. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's hard to express to people when they're chucking uh, bread to ducks. Yep. Uh, also, that's wildly unhealthy for waterfowl, but yes. that's an aside. <laughs> um, talking about what's going on in the park, um, you're using the term, I don't know a lot, which I greatly appreciate. And that often gets left out, I think, in a lot of interviews and a lot of commentary. Uh, part of that 
is that there are things that could be done. You mentioned so scat analysis and things like that. Are there barriers in place right now preventing that? Or is this very much just a resource issue? I of, think it's it a resource. Done, but... I think there's a, I think there's a resource issue, but there's also like, you know, one of the things that we've been noticing from the beginning is we don't have an active, I keep calling for what we would say, similar to what Coyote Watch Canada does, this canid response team. We need to have something mm -hmm. here that is doing this active the minute that we have one aggressive interaction or any type of negative encounter, there's a team that's trained that's out there that's on the ground that's um, understanding what coyote is this, how are we going to handle this and trying to, you know, haze them or kind of condition them back into being um, to, for them to learn that humans are not where they need to be um, coming up yes. to. And I, you know, so I think that we're missing we're missing that in Vancouver. We don't have that in Vancouver, right? I mean, we have some through some of the programs program here, we have a little bit of what had been kind of called hazing in the past where they'd go out, you know, occasionally and do some things, but nobody has a good understanding of the coyotes here. Um, you know, that's why one of the reasons we started to put the cameras up was to understand and try to get a, a baseline for, you know, there's these numbers that are out there. Well, there's about 300 coyotes in Vancouver. And I keep asking people like these, the ones that are publishing this, how do you know that? Like, where are you getting this yep. information from? They're like, well, it's just estimated. I'm like, it's been up there for 15, 20 years. We have probably yep. more than 300 coyotes here. And, you know, we're, we're missing so much information. And so, you know, starting with the cameras, at least we wanted to get our, our eyes on the animals to see how many different types are we seeing. Um, you know, I have a student working on individual identification of the animals. And so she's using different facial features to, to pick that out. Um, and so, yeah. you know, we're, we've been doing this up at UBC so that we, because we have a healthy population. Um, kind of outside of the campus area. And so we've been doing that to understand um, how many animals and it's always eye opening when we realize, wow, we have more than we think we have. Um, or, you know, there's, you know, to watch and see some of their movements throughout the cameras. Um, but we, you know, that's only one component. And, you know, I think when some of this was happening, people were coming to me saying, well, you know, why is this happening? And I keep saying, well, what I can see in the cameras is what I can show you, right? And so here's some yeah. of the evidence that we have, but you know, there's been a group of us um, that have been coming forward to say, we need to do an on the ground investigation. We need to get out there on the ground with a crew of trained individuals. And I'm not going to act as though I'm that trained individual. I need, there's some things that I need to be trained up on to be able to do. So some of the things that I think also need to be looked at are, as we mentioned, the SCAD analysis, and that's going to get us an understanding of what are they eating. Um, and, you know, even if we went so far to be able to um, have some others look at um, genetics, right, and be able to kind of pull yeah. from those different SCAT samples um, and get a little bit more of a genetic profile of some of these individuals, that's a little bit more complex. But if we started at least with um, their, their diet, um, you know, having the people on the ground to be able to as well respond when we have one incident. So they're out there and they're not just, um, you know, kind of canvassing the area, but they're out there more regularly. They know where the coyotes are. They know, um, you know, who some of these offenders are, because that's a big part of it that we're missing right now. And um, I, I don't see that happening. I don't see this ground type crew out there. And I've been trying to get some type of resemblance of one going, but it's also, you know, this requires full-time attention. This requires yeah. a, a kind of a very organized um, set of individuals that can dedicate not just a one-off to this. This needs to be a, 
um, a full kind of program that we start here. And I hope that this can be a catalyst for that. Yeah, one of the things just just to sort of piggyback on that was a comment um, that um, trying to understand what's contributing to all of these changes um, and that uh, what the factors are they they may not the factors may not have changed but the behavior has changed and I read that and it kind of struck me as well clearly something has changed um, or the factors have been so untreated for so long that it's yeah. very simply reached something of a boiling point. Yeah, and I keep hearing this from, you know, I keep hearing these interviews from a variety of different um, people on this topic. And, you know, so many people are leaning towards, oh, it's the pandemic, it's the pandemic that's caused this. And I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not quick to jump to that because we don't know that. If we have the science behind there to show us, so I'm, I'm trying to rely on the evidence that we have in front of us and we need to collect that evidence and then we can make um, a little bit more of a decisive argument as to what's causing this, but could it be the pandemic? Yes, it could be, um, you know, but we, we need to understand with that is, you know, Stanley Park's always been a park that people have used. Um, people were inside for a little bit longer, right? And then they came out, but it doesn't mean that everybody is now using Stanley Park, but we, we were missing a large group of people that used to be using Stanley Park that aren't right now. And those are our international visitors. We have a huge yeah. amount of people that come in the summer and use the park. And so we can't say that the numbers are up in Stanley Park overall, because I wouldn't say that they are. Um, how people are using the park is different. You know, I've also heard the same. I mean, there's, there's, if you, again, you, you know, we talked about staying away from comments on, on media pieces, but if you do yeah. look at that, you know, people talk about, do you know how long Stanley Park's been used as, you know, kind of um, a late night uh, partying and kind of late yeah. night um, other Little types of events, spot. hookup spots. Yeah. And they know, you yes. know, there's a specific way in which you call somebody right at the park. So that that's always been there. And so people have been using the park late at night. Um, and those are the things, you know, when we're talking to the media about some of this, that this isn't something that's new. This isn't all of a sudden it's this, you know, people are partying in the park. No, I think that's been going on for a while. Um, is this a compounded issue where we're all of a sudden seeing, you know, people using the park partying at night? We have, you know, people who have been feeding wildlife for a while. We have, um, you know, we also have the issue, um, which is a sensitive topic and not many um, people, including some of the city folks, want to address this, but the issue of encampments in the park. And, you know, one recent shift that we've seen is we've seen some of the um, other encampments around Vancouver have been closed. And so, and I know that recently the parks boards just voted to allow overnight camping in some of the city parks. And so is that gonna include Stanley Park? Uh, yeah. And if that's the case, then how are they going to account for the effects on wildlife? Because you can't have, and we know that just from campsites in general, right? I mean, if we have, we go to a campsite, we're told how to store food. We're told, you know, it's regularly patrolled by park rangers and then it's checked in on. That's not happening with these encampments in Stanley Park. Um, they don't have dedicated people. You know, we have a, we have a park ranger who is the head of kind of Stanley Park, but they're not there in large amounts, right? And so we'd need yeah. somebody that was there constantly and kind of patrolling those areas. Um, so yeah, there there can be something with the way in which um, some of those encampments are interacting with the animals. We also, you know, have the the possibility, you know, when we talked about the the coyote that was seen with that whiskey bottle. 
Um, yes. You know, the media painted that as that they were drinking the whiskey. Well, we don't know that. Maybe they're using that as a toy, right? Maybe it was something mm -hmm. that they found and they were playing with it. Um, we have no idea of that. So when we talk about that and say that, you know, when we when they do the the necropsies on the animals that were killed in the park, um, hopefully, you know, we did ask for some other profiles to be run with those animals so that, that we can get a greater understanding. So we did ask um, the 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 government to run the genetics on the animals as well as um, a toxicity tests to be able to see what types of toxins they can pull. So are we seeing anything that you know gives any hint of um, any type of ingestion of drugs? You know, we do know in other parts yeah. of the world that I mean, I even had it right outside of my house here. I had somebody walking by with meat and they were throwing it at the crows. And then when I used to live in um, a different city, there was people that were putting poison into meat um, for dogs. Yep. So we don't, we yep. can't rule out that something like that is also happening. Um, and it's an awful thing to think about, but it's, it is something that, um, you know, we have seen one of the coyotes in the park that has a little bit of a neurotic behavior. Um, mm -hmm. Is that, is that our offender? Right. And we, we can't yeah. say that for sure. And so there are still a lot of unknowns. And then if, until we can really pull together all of that information um, and see some of those animals. I mean, the hard thing is, is when I keep saying that, you know, I, I don't want people to be taking pictures of the coyotes, but the one time that I wish we could have that was right when that <laughs> attack was happening, right? Or when, when yeah. there's that aggressive encounter so that we can know with confidence that, okay, this is the individual that we're seeing. Well, and that's something, and we don't need to delve too deeply into this. And throughout all of this conversation, too, I want to assure folks that we are trying very hard not to judge anyone. And we're aware um, of all kinds of circumstances that lead to choices and where people are at. But in terms of talking about um, identifying the coyotes, I think this is a really important one. And it's one that we've issued statements on um, when they are trapped and killed. Uh, officers are stating that they can identify whether or not this was one of the right coyotes. And we're questioning the, you know, the ability to correctly identify one of several in a homogenous group or a likely homogenous group of coyotes from witness reports during a very quick encounter. Um, when you are looking at this kind of thing, what level of uh, uh, confidence would you want in terms of how do we identify these coyotes as whether or not they were involved or are just happen to be around when a baited trap gets put out? I would like complete confidence that these are the individuals. And that's one thing that I kind of said to uh, the conservation officers in a few groups is how are you targeting these animals? Like we have had these photos and we are, we're trying to get an understanding of the individuals in the park, but some of the accounts from the people that have had the attacks are, are stating it, well, it was a small tan coyote. Yeah. That, that doesn't really, um, or that there's some black marking on them, you know, and I know in the past they've said that, well, we did take down some individuals that, you know, we killed some individuals that had black markings on them. Well, there's some, there's a lot of them that have black markings on them. So it's really hard to say. And I mean, even, you know, when we review the images, it can be really difficult at times to tell one from another. Um, so it does get to be a difficult task. Um, and to say with confidence that they have gotten those individuals. And I know they have been able to look at some of the, the bite marks. And so they're able to mm -hmm. look at some of the, you know, and match um, the teeth up to the bite marks and potentially, you know, when they capture the animals, but that some of that's being done post-mortem. It's not necessarily being yeah. done um, while these animals are alive in a, in a leg hold trap. 
Um, and yeah, so it is in my mind indiscriminately killing them. They they haven't come to some of the people that have a little bit more understanding of who some of the coyotes are, and there's not very many of us. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't even know. I wouldn't even, and, and and you know, knowing some of these animals in the park, I wouldn't. I wouldn't even know that that was the offender. Well, I, I think that's again for me. I think about having um, you know witnessed dog fights in a dog park, uh, and I again I read a lot about dog behavior and so on, just as a, an interest, and hearing the story of well, we didn't see anything, and then they were just going at it. Um, and well, which dogs were there when it started? I think these two, well, was it these two or was there a third one that ran away? And, um, you said you saw nothing or nothing happened. They just started going at each other. But again, I, you know, when I have uh, my girl JJ out on the, uh, on a walk on leash and I, there's other people with dogs say, well, can they say hi to each other? And I'm always apprehensive and careful about it, but I watch the behavior of the other dogs and they say, oh, they're friendly. And I say, well, JJ seems a bit nervous right now and your dog is not breaking eye contact. So I'm going to walk away. But just that little thing that it's, it's hard to notice, right? You have to really, really think about it to notice those behaviors. So it always leaves me with that question of how much do we actually know versus how much do we suspect? And I'm hearing a great deal of that from you in terms of trying to understand the situation. Again, pointing to it could be a lot of these things. It could be none of these things. We just don't know yet. Yeah. And I think too many people are jumping to, oh, it's just feeding or it's the pandemic or it's this when we we truly don't know yet. We, we don't have the answers yeah. to that. And we don't know what is, you know, so some of those can be contributing to it. But what, what was some of the breaking point? You know, we're dealing with one or two individuals here. We're not dealing with all of the coyotes in Stanley Park. And I think that's the unfortunate thing that we're seeing here is that, you know, now six coyotes have been killed in the park. Um, because of this. Yeah. And we still have some of these incidents happening. Um, and, you know, then they moved to a different part of the park. And I, you know, gave the warning and I said, you can't like, we, we can't just be going in here and setting traps and killing the whole population. A, because that's not going to yeah. take care of the problem. Like, we don't want the coyotes doing this, but we, we have a, a management issue here that we need to deal with. Something needs to be done on the ground. Um, to be able yeah. to help curb this behavior. And as we've talked about in the past, you know, when you remove individuals, more are going to move in. And we know that, you know, when I think we're learning as well, there was a coyote that was found on one of the, the boats out in the inlet. Um, oh, and really? yeah, and this was, um, I learned about it from one of the conservation officers when I um, just a few weeks ago. And so this was just this, um, just the summer and um, they called one of the, the local veterinarians to come in and help that, um, to kind of capture that animal and, and put it back into the park. Um, but so they are, they are swimming out to a certain degree. We know that there have been pups that have been found near the water as well. So there is interaction within that. And so how far are they traveling, right? Are, are we seeing that? And are we just missing that they're actually moving across the waterway there? Um, wow. So yeah. It reminds I mean, me, uh... <laughs> Reminds me of Takaya, that yeah. story, um, yeah. who I, I recently spoke with Cheryl Alexander, um, and uh, just hearing the story of how he would swim, and and it's not something you would necessarily think a wolf would do, but no, he knew how to swim, and he knew how to swim like a kayaker at that, right? Mm -hmm. So it, it's always interesting what we end up learning when we stop assuming and we start watching. Yes. Uh, and on that note, it very much does seem like and I'm going to cast a wide net here in saying most people 
want this to be a binary issue. So this is the problem. This is the solution. And here's how we're going to solve it. Um, they want, uh, regardless of what their potential solution is, uh, you know, get rid of all the coyotes or get rid of all the people or anything in between. Um, and again, I, I get the distinct feeling that binary, the way or looking at this in a binary way is part of maybe why we're here today. Mm-hmm. Um, by not looking at all of the nuances and asking some of the more in-depth questions. Yeah, and asking the hard questions. And so, you know, as you even yeah. mentioned before, we don't want, you know, we're not trying to point fingers at any person or, or organization or anything, but this is, there's a lot of factors that are probably contributing to this. Unless we put all the factors on the table and take a look at them, I don't think we'll know exactly what's going on that led to this change. It'd be great if it was just one person standing there feeding a coyote. If it was, then we'd know. So that's why I think we need to look at things a little bit more in depth. And, you know, it is hard, I think. And part of this is changing human behavior. And that's what is a difficult thing is when we need to realize, well, you know, this this is a human problem. Um, as well as a coyote problem. You know, the, the coyotes, we don't want the coyotes to be acting aggressive. And so in that sense, it's a coyote problem. Um, but yes. I, I don't want to blame the coyotes for this, but it's also um, humans are contributing to this. And then in terms of the the coverage of this, this is something that um, I hear from a lot of people in science. There becomes a certain discomfort with speaking to the media. Um, and there are some, some researchers I know who are brilliant, who simply just don't want to do media, even me, uh, with long form interviews, giving you all the space you need and all the links that are possible. There's some people who just aren't comfortable with it anymore. Um, and in that it is very often a very slight misquote or not quite including things. Again, I think, uh, as a former journalist, what I hear from you in this conversation that is simply not in most of the media reporting is we don't know this giant stack of information. Uh, I'm making a giant stack with my hands for those people who are listening. Um, and instead it's that, well, here's the one thing I do know, um, or it could be this. And they take that, well, it could be this. And all of a sudden that's the story, uh, for people who are following along with this, this issue or other wildlife related issues. Is there something that you would offer in terms of reading the media accounts and how researchers are quoted that would be helpful to getting a fuller understanding of the story uh, that maybe isn't possible, particularly in a broadcast format where the time limits are extraordinary? Yeah, and I would say, I mean, from, you know, this is something that I think is the more interviews that we do, the more frustrated I get. And I know my colleagues are the same, right? Because it's depending upon the format. And, you know, in some sense, I've started to think to myself, I should just stick to live interviews because the narrative can be a little bit more open during that, right? And so I can offer those things and it's harder for them to cut out some of the the pieces, which I and others feel are important, right? So there's been recent interviews where it's a snippet and it's not even the full picture. And I think yeah. that's that's a disservice to the issue at hand. And it's not going to, you know, we, I, we've talked about this in the past, just the way in which the media can really change the storyline. And, you know, you, you read these articles and I, I look at them and think, wow, that's not even what's going on. And now the public thinks that this is actually the issue when that's not even in the slightest. And I don't know, I don't know how to change some of that. Um, I think that comes down to um, 
the journalism itself and opening that up a little bit and allowing for some of those spaces. You know, the other thing that I, I see on some of this is they, you know, we get a lot of media requests and some of the people that are speaking on some of the issues, I often wonder like, how are, how are they knowledgeable on, I don't, let's talk about Stanley Park, how are they knowledgeable on what's going on in Stanley Park? You know, I've heard some and I, I appreciate it that some have said, I haven't been there. I don't know. I am not even involved in this research, but from could be contributing to it. And then it gets spun by the media as, oh, well, this is it. Like, this is what this researcher yeah. said. And I think we have to be cautious of that. We need to be speaking to the people that are on the ground. Yeah, it's tough. And I, I think the other thing that folks can notice is when they don't speak to someone who's on the ground and then ask the question why or why not um mm -hmm. again that's one of the questions that often gets left out of media is why the the, the motivation mm -hmm. for things and i always found that the most interesting part of the news of yes these are the things that happened but why did they happen and mm -hmm. what else is going on and so on uh but as you noted it, especially in certain formats that's just not possible uh, and I think, as you said, it does do a disservice. Uh, and then we start seeing headlines about coyote attacks are on the rise across Canada. And how can you protect yourself? That really does it. It does a disservice not only to, uh, you know, the coyotes and the wildlife and the ecosystem and everyone involved with Stanley Park, but then creates this this sense of, oh, wow, I saw a coyote. Now we got to do something about it. Mm -hmm. It does. And it's, you know, I knew speaking with some colleagues as well, you know, I mean, we're not dealing with, we have a few coyote kind of offenders, if we want to call them. There's a few individuals mm -hmm. that have been, we've had these some type of human interaction with that has turned negative. And those are the individuals that are driving this we have you know an increase in the number of coyotes doing this um, and i think yeah. that's an important thing that that needs to be pointed out yeah i guess it would be sort of like saying you know uh there was two hockey fights in toronto last night and one in vancouver ergo if you have a hockey stick someone might be coming for you exactly um it, it it's a we like, when you put it in any other context it completely falls apart but because the animals aren't or non-human animals aren't able to say hey you didn't interview me that doesn't often get passed along and then we create this we create this fear as well right so we're creating yes. this fear you know i've been talking to people like oh you know no no no, no we can't be anywhere around coyotes they're going to attack us and I'm like that's that's not the case right that's not what's going to happen mm -hmm. you want to you know i mean even with people i keep getting asked what should we do if we want to go to stanley park well right now I would probably say limit your use of Stanley Park. But if they are going there, they shouldn't be going there at dawn dusk. I mean, most of these most of these incidents are happening at 9, 10 p.m. And I'm reading yeah. about some of these incidents and I just I'm I'm a little bit baffled at um how Yeah, I um <laughs> we're both at a loss for words at that point. So I will offer uh, an anecdote that speaks to this kind of thing also. Uh, I, I like to run. I'm not a great runner, but I run. I do, you know, 10, 15K a week when I can. And I was running down. I always leave one earbud out, whether I'm on the road or on a trail, because I'm you want to know what's going on around you. Um, I was running down. In Hamilton, we have the uh, the rail trail, which is quite lovely to run. 
and came up to a set of big, big sta- escarpment stairs, which folks out West always laugh. We call it the mountain, but um, it's the, the Niagara escarpment and has stairs up it. And I was running up to them. Uh, I was being chased by zombies because that's the running app I use. And there was a young woman standing at the top of the stairs with big, chunky, like looked like the studio headphones I'm wearing right now. And I ran, I was running towards her. She's standing at the top of the stairs looking at her phone. I shouted, coming up behind you, nothing. Started clapping my hands, nothing. Had to literally jump on the grate she was standing on before she noticed. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to victim blame here, but it is a question that needs to be pondered of, you know, is are the people who are involved in some of these and obviously not all of them are but some of them it is someone running blocking their senses at night and whether you're concerned about coyotes or the more large concern for me which is the humans um it just seems like a bad idea and why is that not part of the narrative yeah, and even if you don't, I mean, I know they've been asking that. So, you know, when they interview some of the the people that have been involved in these incidents, they are asking those questions. And so we're trying to understand that a little bit, but so not everybody is. And so that, you know, I mean, but there's also a different level of awareness of your surroundings, right? And I mean, even when I've been in the park before, I was there with a woman and we were kind of doing some ground surveillance and we were walking around and there was this um, woman with her three kind of teenage kids and they were walking down and this was when part of the park was closed off um, because conservation officers were there and they had set coyote traps and there were um, you know these individuals that were walking and I we kind of said to them hey you know part of this park is actually closed off right now just to give you a heads up you're not gonna you're not gonna find because they had just parked I said you're not gonna find anything down here that you'll be able to access and they said oh it's closed how come And so then we had to tell them about what was happening. And so there's also a lack, I think, of understanding of um, what is happening in the park. So needing to be reaching out on that wider, you know, they're, I think we may be assuming that people are just watching the news um, and getting it somehow. So there Mm -hmm. needs to be more signage in the park about this. Um, But there's also some people, I think, that are, are willing to take the risk And, you know, there was an elderly couple that we were standing there right near the red tape that says, do not enter. You know, it's like police tape, do not Mm -hmm. enter. And an elderly couple walked up and, you know, we said, you know, this, this area is closed off, um, that they are, you know, conservation officers are here. They're, they're, you know, in the midst of trying to um, deal with the aggressive coyotes and they ducked under the tape and they said, we'll take our chances because we don't want to walk in the sun. Yeah, And it, it just floored me because it's that's part of the problem as well, is that mm-hmm. we need to be working as a collective on this. And, you know, when people, if they are going to use the park, I hope they understand what wildlife lives there. It's not yeah. a, we're not talking, I mean, this is an urban forest. It's not a just, uh, we're, we're going to a city park where there's just some trees. I mean, this is yeah. a forest, right? So this is, and that's where I think maybe the terminology is getting a little bit tricky because people are thinking of this as just a regular park and it's not, it's a forest where we have wildlife living there. Um, and I don't know if everyone understands the level of which um, something could occur. Yeah. Um, it's that that burden of knowledge sometimes of uh, if you're walking down a path that's been taped off, uh, something bad might happen. And I think the other aspect, uh, sort of the the flip side of that coin, is they say, well, we're fine with that. 
but what is not realized is okay but what happens if something happens because but i'm not fine with that well that too <laughs> because yes. then we're gonna have because then we're gonna have potentially another coyote incident right and then it bumps that up even more so it's it, do they understand that it's not just themselves who are involved in this situation and i feel that is often at the core of some of the wildlife issues we see Again, uh, I think a great example is feeding bread to ducks, which is very, very bad for them and can kill them. And you tell people this and they say, oh, I didn't know that. I'm here with my kids. We're going to feed the ducks, though. And so, OK, I know you want that, but I'm telling you there is a there's a very real negative consequence to what you're doing. And it's this <laughs> sort of lack of ability to look outside oneself when in an ecosystem. Um, yes. or in a mall parking lot, maybe sometimes that's a story for later over drinks, but, um, you know, like you really got to just appreciate that we're all part of this. We're all in it together, whether we like it or not. And we got to yes. talk with each other and listen to each other. And sometimes when there's a sign that says, don't go this way, just don't go this way. Yeah. There's a reason for that. Right. Very briefly, wanted to touch on too. Uh, uh, we had mentioned the pandemic aspect of this. Um, of course, people are massive change in human behavior, which is pretty much unprecedented, I think, since the last world war. Um, one of the things I have noticed in media and on social media is more and more people posting images of look at this wildlife I saw outside my house. And you think, oh, wow, like a cougar came up to your window and knocked on the glass. And as it turns out, no, it's their doorbell camera at two in the morning catching wildlife being wildlife. And I'm wondering to a degree, is that having an influence? Just the, the sheer volume of surveillance equipment, um, you know, and whether or not it's meant as surveillance equipment is, you know, not the point, but between trail cams and doorbells and security cameras and cell phones and all of these other things, are we just noticing more? Like, is there a big shift happening or are we just seeing more because we're looking more? I do think that we're looking more. I, yeah. I think with the pandemic, people have been able to slow down a little bit, right? We have been able to not be about our busy lives. And when we're about our busy lives, doing all the things, we're missing some of those things around us. Yeah. And I even think when people are out potentially in the parks and they're chatting with their friends or they're doing stuff, they're missing some of the things around them. You know, when I bring researchers out with me, I, you know, with some of the student researchers, I'm trying to tell them, okay, like, I, I need you guys to be looking around right now. I need you to be hearing things, looking, seeing things, and not necessarily engaging in conversation because you're going to miss things otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that with the pandemic, that's one thing that we've been able to do is slow down a little bit um, and, and take in some other things. Um, you know, maybe people are reviewing some of that footage a little bit more. Mm -hmm. I know I just lent a, a trail camera to some friends and they put it up in their backyard and they're like, oh my goodness, we didn't realize that we have these large rats in our backyard, yep. right? But they've always been there. And yeah. that's the thing is, you know, they've been living with them so far. Um, so now are they, you know, going to change anything because of that? Or just knowing that, that you have some of those um, animals around. I, I think that's the other thing is if people actually, you know, knew some of the other animals that are around you at the time, they're just really good about kind of staying away from where humans are. Or we're good about not seeing them. Or both, I think. And that's, you know, we, we hear about coyotes becoming brazen because they walk down the streets. Um, and this is one of the last two things I wanted to ask you about. 
I, I uh, had a lovely call from someone who had some coyotes living at the back of their property or visiting the back of their property. It said, and I go out there and try and scare them away because if they're not afraid of people, they'll die. And it was a very, you know, it was a very nice call to get someone who wants to help these coyotes, knows not to feed, and that the best thing they can do is keep the coyotes wild. But then there becomes this concept that if a coyote doesn't immediately run away or any wildlife doesn't immediately run away, it's bold or aggressive. And I can uh, remember I was with Leslie Sampson at a meeting once and someone was telling me, well, I, I yelled at this coyote and I waved my arms and they didn't run away. And I happened to know the exact park they were at. Uh, I was a journalist in this community. I know it quite well. They said, so you were on the sidewalk over here? She said, yes. They said, where was the coyote? She said, over by the trail entrance. They said, okay, so mm -hmm. 300 meters away, uh, like pretty much a football field and a half. She's like, yes. And I said, and you waved your arms and it didn't run away. No. I said, why, why would he? What, 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 hmm. what, why would I be afraid of you doing that? Um, so it, it, do we need wildlife to be afraid of people? Is that the goal here, do you think? Or is that maybe just a little bit of a, again, one of these minor missteps in language where is, is it fear or is it apprehension that we're looking for? I would say apprehension. We want them to be, you know, have a, have a healthy boundary, if you want to say. And it sounds like that coyote in the park had that boundary. Yeah. They were away. So if you were to start to approach them, they would probably push back a little bit farther. And, and it also has to do with how loud was that person? How yeah. much waving was happening? Was there any noise, you know, besides there's a, there's a lot of things that, that can play into that um, as to, but no, I don't think we should have um, animals being afraid of us. Yeah. It, fear tends to not do well for anyone. Um, one of the other ones that I had about, or another call I had regarding that uh, was someone called me and said, oh, I honked my horn. Like I saw these coyotes and I honked my horn at them and they didn't do anything. So those coyotes live next to a highway. They, they hear that sound all day, every day. That's not scary to anyone. I mean, I live in the middle of East Hamilton. Hearing police sirens is part of my natural ambiance now, right? It doesn't cause me any concern. Um, and it's one of those, I think people just maybe don't get still sometimes uh and that is i think i wish the coyotes would be scared of the honking because i i we see too many injuries yes, with cars definitely. right and i i wish that they would learn that um but they don't but yeah i mean it is something that i think we um we need to to work on where that where that boundary should be with them and to to have people kind of understand that in a, a little bit more of a holistic way to learn more about Dr. Kristen Walker's work and see some of her published studies, visit her UBC page. The links are in this week's show notes in your podcast app or at DefenderRadio.com. To learn more about coyotes and what successful coexistence looks like, visit TheFurBears.com and click our Living with Wildlife section or check out our friends at CoyoteWatchCanada.com. I want to thank Kristen for her work on this issue, as well as taking time out of an incredibly busy schedule to chat with us. I'd also like to thank all of you for listening. Please share this episode on your social media channels to help spread this evidence-based information. Coexistence often begins with understanding. You can find me on social media at Howie Michael on Instagram and the Defender Radio Podcast on Facebook. The Fur Bearers can be found on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Please follow, subscribe, and review Defender Radio on Apple Podcasts, the Facebook page, or wherever you listen to help get more people listening. Until next time, I'm Michael Howie for Defender Radio and the Fur Bears, reminding you to be kind 
and to stay informed and stay strong.